Marshall and Sager here. Welcome back to The Realignment. It is with great satisfaction I can report to all of you that we have 783 ratings on Apple Podcasts. You guys are getting us closer to our all-important goal of 1,000 ratings. So if you could just spare a moment, scroll down to the bottom of that Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars. It really helps other people find the show. And of course, if you leave us a question in a written review, we will answer it right here on The Realignment, which is what we're about to do. So Marshall, what do we got? Yeah, so a reminder, send us an email with a screenshot of a five-star review to realignmentpod at gmo.com or leave us a five-star written review with a question inside of it. So this week's question is from... Mujishin, M-U-Jishin. Question, what political options remain for the hosts if the Republican Party doesn't give up its project of austerity and embrace their preferred brand of conservative populism in, say, the next 10 years? If there's no rising party, will you still be a part of the Republican Party and simply lead frustrated lives? Will you continue to be deluded like the many Bernie supporters who routinely vote for Democratic neocons? I think this person has a perspective, Sagar. What do you think about... I think there's sort of two levels you can answer this question on. Yeah, I think it's a funny question. I also think it's a good one. Uh, Look, if they don't do it, I mean, that's up to them. This podcast is basically just saying that they have the opportunity if they were to do so. You know, the Democratic Party had an opportunity to be a populist party, too. They chose not to be that. It's very much in the possibility the Republicans could choose that. If they do that, then I guess we won't be Republicans anymore, Marshall. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, that's pretty much the answer, right? I mean, it's like... This is good because this is a chance for us to sort of restate what we're doing here, right? This isn't sort of like the populist nationalist hour where we just sort of tell you guys that all of your answers and all of your questions will be solved by voting for X or Y and Z Republican. No, like that's not what we're trying to do here. The reality is Sagar and I get to talk to really cool people and we put it on a podcast and we talk to people no matter what. So regardless of how the Democratic or Republican parties change, we are still going to keep having these sort of conversations because that's the part that's frankly more interesting. And to the question, musician, if the Republican Party is just this terrible P2015 thing, then I just won't be a Republican. Same thing for Sagar. It's pretty straightforward. (laughs) It's so simple, right? Like the whole point of the podcast, the whole point of my work and, and so many different areas is just to say, hey, there's this giant political opportunity out there. I'm not saying that another side is going to take it. I think the right is best poised to take that opportunity at this current moment in time. But if they choose to go down that road, if the left chooses to go down the road that it currently is in, the opportunity is still going to be there. And the conversations that we're having here are also going to remain. So I think that that's the most important thing. I'm committed to the realignment. That doesn't mean that I'm necessarily committed to anybody. I'm just saying that if they somebody wanted to embrace it, that it would be of great political opportunity for them to do so. Yeah, and that's the perfect pivot into our show this week, which is all about political parties, alternatives to the duopoly of the Republican and Democratic parties. Sagar, who do we speak with? That's right. It is Dr. Brett Weinstein of the Dark Horse Podcast, phenomenal podcast. He's got a very interesting idea called Unity 2020. Some of you might have heard about it on Rising or over at the Joe Rogan Experience. I really wanted to talk to the good doctor because I think he's one of the most fascinating people in politics. He brings his evolutionary biology background. He thinks of things within systems. That's what I want you all to start thinking like, which is don't just think about individuals. Don't just think about discrete political events. Think about the systems that create incentives and disincentives that people act within in order to achieve outcomes which we don't like the only way that you can change a system is to understand how systems work that's something that he articulates really really well yeah and speaking of realignment questions the number one question we get from people is about why aren't you guys in a third party how do i start my third party movement so this episode we really sort of we're using this as our final real statement on how this sort of works and we're really reflective of the fact that there's so many people that are interested in the sort of perspective that you know the doctor has which is that he's dissatisfied of both parties he's trying to find some sort of alternative and he's thinking really structurally about that so there's a lot of great stuff there You guys are going to enjoy this interview. 
And of course, last but not least, a shout out to Lincoln Network, the host and sponsor of this podcast. A reminder, the official registration forms for the Reboot 2020 conference are out. You can register at rebootconference.org. It's going to be very exciting. Sagar is going to be there. I'm going to be there. People like Rachel Bovard and Matt Stoller, who you guys know and love in various formats, are going to be there as well, too. So please come check that out. Let's dive into the episode. Brett, thank you for joining The Realignment. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so good to see you, Brett. We're here to talk about Unity 2020, but I want to start with talking about the stakes. Because when you talk about Unity 2020, the best part of the interviews from my perspective is when you're talking about how fearful you are for the path the country's sort of on. So let's just start there. What is your sort of fear about if the status quo maintains and continues? Well, I... I think, frankly, almost everybody I talk about is afraid for the country. And a lot of people have a kind of way to compartmentalize that. So it doesn't show up in their, you know, their polite interactions or maybe when they show up on an interview with you all. But um, but people are frightened and they're frightened for a number of different reasons. Some of the some of it is just a vague sense that things aren't right. For other people who are more deeply steeped in history, they are seeing very close parallels to uh, the Great Leap Forward in China, for example, or the Bolshevik Revolution. And frankly, I don't think we're going to repeat either of those, but we don't want to end up on a short list of great human tragedies. And the tragedy would be all the greater in the U.S. for taking a system that, for all of its flaws, works brilliantly and uh, wrecking it rather than fixing it. So um, whether the analogies that we see between our current spasms and the other incidents in history to which there is a parallel, there is evidence that many people are fearful. For one thing, we're seeing unprecedented sales of firearms and ammunition to first-time gun owners. So somehow in all of the polling and other temperature taking that gets done, it's a little hard to capture the fact that many Americans are apparently contemplating the idea that they might have to shoot somebody. Right. So Brett, I think that's really interesting. And I want to, I want to characterize it in that same context, which is that there people are very willing to throw out it's 1968 takes you know like oh it's it's terrible like and yet i try to think back about what the stakes of that actually were i mean we had vietnam 50,000 dead you know jfk malcolm x mlk i mean just so much kind of had happened i mean are we overstating the case too much by just pointing to gun sales i just want to try and understand the nature through which we feel existentialism in our politics well, you have to work a little bit to disentangle it. For one thing, people are always predicting the end, and they're never right. Um, on the other <laughs> hand, at the point that the end comes, people will have predicted it, and they will have been right. <laughs> right. Or at least they will have been in the ballpark. So how do you deal with a, a situation like that? It's not, it's not simple. And what I would suggest is that actually, in some sense, the end comes more frequently than we think populations have reached their end relatively regularly. And so the fact that populations often conflate their own existence with the existence of humanity um, means that the tendency to spot hazards, existential threats, may be more finely tuned than we understand. Now, 1968, there are some good parallels. There are some places where it rings hollow. But nonetheless, the energy in the system is very, very high the ability to predict even weeks out is very, very low. That is in and of itself a dangerous phenomenon. Ideally, what you want to do is limit the unknowns so that you have the tools necessary to navigate come what may. And we're not there, right? We have a political structure which has more or less announced that it is uninterested in leadership. What it's going to do instead is capture power and continue to monetize it. It's going to peddle influence to people who can pay. And we are supposed to imagine that because 
it wants our system to survive in order that its racket can continue, that our system will continue. And that is not so clear. In fact, it is the fact of people being frozen out of the well-being that their societies generate that causes people to revolt and upend systems, which mm -hmm. is obviously something many people are feeling in different forms. So before we move on from the 68 example, how did we move past that, right? So because if, I think this is important to bookend for everyone. We, you know, you start off the optimism of the 60s, you know, JFK sending a man to the moon, JFK is assassinated, the Civil Rights Act, busing, segregation, riots, the DNC protests. It sort of bookends itself with Nixon. I mean, you know, uh, the, the, the violence there. So how, how did we emerge from that? So that if we were recording the radio version of this podcast back in 68, how would we sort of get out of that in that example? Well, first of all, there's a question about whether or not it was clear. If you if you assume that because we did get out of it, that that was always uh, where we were headed, then you'd be making a mistake. Um, as for how we got out of it, um, I, I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer the question. But what I will say is that we did not have some of the amplifiers of chaos that we currently have. So, for example, at the moment, we have... Um, these tech platforms which govern our ability to interact and they have algorithms which frankly I don't think even they understand the impacts of. The algorithms mm -hmm. are tuned to relatively uh, narrow objectives, you know, economic competition between platforms. But the mechanism by which they compete is distorting our ability to think. And worse than that, it's not even as if the, or the algorithms are a fixed target those algorithms are evolving and we don't know when they change. As far as I know, there is no major effort to reverse engineer their content so that we can create corrective glasses for ourselves and, you know, undistort our world. But it is resulting in the divergence between narratives, right? We have two populations that believe that reality looks one way or the other, and the two versions cannot be reconciled. And that is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Let me ask you this, Brett, which is that, is the solution to this political? This is something that people on the right argue about all the time, which is that, is politics downstream from culture? Is culture downstream from politics? I think on some cases, the answer is yes. On some cases, the answer is no. I mean, does it really matter who wins the presidency if algorithms are the ones that are dividing us? Um, does vice versa? Can we think about it within that context? What's what's your answer to that cultural conundrum, so to speak? I don't I don't think we can really answer that question because, you know, um, as many of your listeners will know, I'm an evolutionary biologist and I view this as um, a novel version of a very ancient puzzle. So, you know, if you were to ask the question about what role politics played for the ancient Maya, I'm not sure you would know how to map that term onto what they did. Does right. that mean they didn't have an analog of what we call politics? No, but um, it functioned differently. And so um, we need wise political action, right? That is to say, the space that we call politics needs people to behave wisely and in our collective interest, and it needs for their efforts to be viable. But I'm not sure we would see it as politics, because when we use that term, we're very often talking about a bastardization of something honorable. So it's sort of the malignant version of something good. And that good thing is necessary. I'm not sure what the common parlance term for it would be, though, right? It's, it's the, you know, what, what do we call the machinations of the founding fathers? Was that politics? Mm -hmm. Right? I, I'm not sure that we, I, I'm not sure we would recognize it that way. Because in some sense, if you look at the history, there was an overwhelming sense of obligation to the future to set things in motion correctly. And it's not to say that they got it right, because obviously there's some famous places where they got it wrong. But, um, but nonetheless, their intent was to create a system that solved certain problems that they saw and did so with the capacity to go on indefinitely. We need that. If you call that politics, then yes, political uh, action is very important. What 
role does it play relative to these algorithmic phenomena? Well, there's a question about do we want to stand down the algorithms and leave us free to discuss what might be and what is? Or do we want to recognize the effect of the algorithms and regulate them so that they do not have a deranging effect on our sense making? Yeah. So I like your framing around the two different narratives, and this gets to sort of what you're trying to do with Unity 2020. But how do we... I'm interested in your sort of articulation of the idea that the system in many ways is corrupt and isn't working towards the good. Because if we look at those two narratives, they would agree to certain parts of that. But what they would probably say is, the Demo if I'm a Republican, the Democrats are not working towards the good. And insert my favorite politician or podcaster right. is working towards the good and vice versa on the Democratic side. So can you speak so so as someone who I think is, is very balanced when you're coming to this sort of critique of both parties, what do, what is your definition of the good that's not being done? What are the issues that aren't being addressed properly? Well, you know, it, it looks to me in some sense like uh, it, at its best, it looks like a yin-yang where you have two populations that see something with clarity and believe they see something else with clarity that is a mirage. So, mm -hmm. you know, I almost never hear on the right a proper discussion of sustainability, right? I hear it as, oh, that's another one of those things liberals use to justify their control, right? They are selling us a story that we're in more danger than we're in. And that story is what they use to, you know, they, they're pulling the fire alarm in order to, to reshuffle the cards. And it's just simply not true. The fact is we are in terrible jeopardy ecologically. And if we got everything else right, that one would still take us out in the end, sooner rather than later. So at some level, the right has um, misunderstood that the entire game is inside of economics, politics, and these other uh, human endeavors. And it's not understanding that a lot of it is, um, it's basically an epiphenomenon that is a consequence of industrialization and a consequence of the way in which industrialization is distributed. In other words, our focus on economic efficiency has caused us to um, offshore our industry, which has put us in uh, international jeopardy, um, and it has created a crisis in which people are externalizing the um, the negative consequences of the production of all of the stuff that we use into the commons. Okay, so that requires us to team up in order to figure out how to address it. In other words, it's not the liberals that are the enemy of the conservatives, it's externalities that are the enemy of us all. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, uh, the right doesn't get it. On the other hand, the left, I think it's been very poor in leveling its critique about uh, unfairness in our system, but I believe there is a great deal of unfairness in our system. It is unfortunately of a more subtle kind than the left typically alleges. The left wants to say, we know exactly its nature. Um, we know how it got there. We know what it represents. And um, we have to, you know, at the moment, the left is suggesting we need to tear the system down because it couldn't possibly be fixed. And this is obviously nonsense, right? But um, the unfairness itself is a real problem, and it's one to which the right has traditionally been deaf. The, the right is um, reluctant to admit that the unfairness is the result of anything other than competition and merit sorting people out. And it is really unclear on the question of why people differ in capacity. And so, you know, there are really two possible answers. One is that it's endogenous stuff that we can't do very much about, in which case we have to go to one set of solutions, or it's not endogenous. And we could democratize capacity, which is what I firmly believe is the case. And if that is the case, then our failure to do it is um, putting us in, in jeopardy. Brett, could you explain the concept of endogeneity just for anybody who, out there who might not know? Sure. Let, let's just say, um, you know, let's take this out of the human space just to make it simple, right? If we talk about, you know, let's just talk about the flight of birds, right? You got birds of different kinds. A hummingbird can hover, it can fly backwards, right? It can maneuver in very tight quarters. It's like a, you know, it's better than a fighter jet, mm -hmm. right? You've got 
uh, a frigate bird, which can fly for thousands of miles, barely flapping its wings, right? Hyper efficient, but not agile, right? These are two different uh, creatures that are built for two different circumstances. If a a puzzle shows up that requires agility, there's no way for the uh, the frigate bird to compete, right? It's going to be the hummingbird. The hummingbird has what it takes. So there's an endogenous capacity difference. It's just built in. And, you know, these endogenous capacity differences exist in humans physically, right? This is absolutely unambiguous, right? People from Kenya and Ethiopia dominate marathon running. Why is that? Well, they're built with certain advantages for it right? I mean, one that's relatively easy to spot is a long, lanky body is very good for radiating heat, which makes sense if you think about what it takes to travel long distances in the environments we find in Ethiopia and, and Kenya, right? So it creates a person that's brilliantly built to radiate heat, which means that they don't, it doesn't build up, it doesn't overwhelm mm -hmm. them. Whereas an Inuit is built round. Why is an Inuit built round? Because it minimizes the surface area. There's less radiator. So an Inuit is built to capture heat, right? If you switch their environments, each population will do very poorly because it's endogenously built for what it faces. This is why we see certain races dominating, you know, the NBA is dominated by tall blacks, right? They're built for it. But the, the problem is the right and i think actually many people sort of suspect that well what we see in different sports these different populations being built for these different jobs that's bound to be reflected cognitively and as uncomfortable as it is that must that must be the reason that we see inequity between races and i think actually there's very little chance this is true mm -hmm. um that the 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 magic of humans is that they are so heavily software based and that that software is democratizable, right? So to the extent that um, Black Lives Matter is tapping into a sense of unfairness, I think that there is something underneath it that they are failing to say, which is that we are not doing a good job of making sure that everybody in our culture gets the goods to compete in the meritocracy. I think that's such an excellent articulation. It really comes down to I mean, something I'm kind of obsessed with, egalitarianism and equality of opportunity. Of course, Dr. Peterson talks about this, equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. I think we should also give the audience a bit of a framework for kind of the viewpoint and presenting such interesting um, points here. You call yourself a far left radical. And yet, you know, in our contemporary discourse that doesn't exactly click with some of the things that you're saying, what does that term mean to you? And how might an average passive observer of politics understand your perspective through that definition and that lens? Well, you know, I have a, a model that I use to sort of categorize myself and others. And I would say the, the central question that places you on the left-right spectrum is your relationship to the idea of change. Now, I will say, analytically, I'm not a relativist, but politically I am in the following sense. I am very interested in seeing a system that works very well. I do not believe that we can build a perfect system. Utopia is impossible. I've called it the worst idea humans ever had. It has caused a tremendous amount of tragedy. But my point would be, to the extent that you believe change is desirable and worth the risks, you're a liberal or a progressive. To the extent that you believe that the system is so good that changing it is not worth the hazard because you're likely to make it worse, you're a conservative. And so... I am a progressive, I'm a liberal, um, I believe we can do much better than we are doing. In fact, I would argue we have to do much better than we are doing or we will perish. That's why I'm a radical. I believe we must face the necessity for radical change. That our system, as good as it, as it is, is a prototype. It was built without an understanding of what world it would need to govern. And we need the 2.0 version right away. So that makes, me, um, that makes me a progressive by definition. I believe progress is necessary because the alternative is uh, the, um, the disintegration of our system 
a system on which we are all dependent. That said, I think I differ from most other progressives in the sense that progressives tend to underrate the hazard of change. I find change frightening. I know that we are likely to create unintended consequences in whatever we do. And so we must navigate very carefully as we change things. Um, and we could do harm. We have to be aware of that possibility. Ultimately, I would like to see the system um, fixed to the point that it is so good that changing it would be foolish, right? I, I am a liberal who wants to be a conservative. I want a system so fair and so <laughs> functional that my argument will be we, we shouldn't change it because we will almost certainly make it worse. So let's speak to the obstacle that you see in the face of any form of progressive change, which I would sum up as the duopoly of the two-party system in this country. Could you speak to your sort of articulation of that problem, that obstacle? Sure. So first of all, I should say for um, your listeners who may not know me very well, I'm 51 years old. So that tells you what slice of history I've seen. I think a 51-year-old American is just old enough to remember functional governance, right? Now, I don't remember it being very functional, but I remember it being somewhat functional. Adjacent. Yeah, yeah. it was functional, <laughs> functional adjacent. Now it has become malignant, right? We know that uh, what Americans want has almost no influence over policy, right? The arguments that we have politically over what Americans want are basically theater that covers the duopolies, um, capture of power and its its peddling of that power to well-resourced special interests. So to my way of thinking, what is happening is the power, you know, these parties once represented something. They represented something with some degree of honor. And, you know, I'm there was always corruption. Nobody, nobody's in the dark about that. But the point of the system has become corruption and what that means is that people have the sense year after year that they are being promised things, that those things don't emerge. When they do emerge, they're so compromised by the deals that have been made to get them passed that they don't really work. Um, and so there is an overwhelming sense of the system being rigged against average people, because it is. Now, what isn't frequently understood is that Average people are profiting in absolute terms by other kinds of progress. In other words, we are all in some sense wealthy relative to our ancestors by virtue of what we have access to. I mean, your mm -hmm. cell phone gives you access to Wikipedia. That's an amazing level of informational access that virtually every American above a certain age uh, has, right? So that's a kind of wealth that is very real. But Human beings are tuned to inequity, right? We're built for this evolutionarily. We're built to regard the difference in what we have and what others have. And we live in an environment that gives us a very wrong idea about that because A, we see people on screens. Those people on screens are tending their brand. They're broadcasting a message that may mislead us about how wealthy they are. And most importantly, those people that we see on our screens aren't competing in the same environment we are. So how wealthy they are doesn't really tell us anything about how we're doing. Um, but anyway, it is amplifying people's dissatisfaction and causing them, I think, to rebel. And we see this again and again, you know, in some sense, I was just in downtown Portland last night and uh, in the spot where the elk statue was um, burned by rioters, um, there is now a shrine to George Floyd. And at the head of that shrine is a sign that says we are the 99%. So in some mm -hmm. sense, people's frustration over inequality is just moving from one movement to the next. And it is a sign that we have a problem that must be addressed, even if that problem is not being well articulated. Could you speak to the nature of what corruption is? Because I think from a historical perspective, it's really fascinating because on the one hand, if we look at pre-1970s politics, right? So when you had a, actually a functioning system, the system that passed the New Deal, the Civil Rights Acts, you know, the GI Bill after World War II, all those sorts of things. 
it was incredibly corrupt, right? You had the literal smoke-filled rooms. There was no form of campaign finance reform. I, I remember Mitt Romney tells a great story about how the campaign finance system used to work. He said his dad would make three calls in a motel and then he would just get a bunch of checks and then he was just sort of done because there was no limit on spending. So how at the same time if we had a system that from an operational perspective is functionally less corrupt. Why do people feel like the system is less corrupt then from a historical operational basis? Well, this is a great question. And uh, there are a couple things that play into it. One thing to say is we should dichotomize the world of things that might be done, policy changes that we might have into two groups, right? One group are things that benefit everybody. They benefit the population and they benefit the special interests and not just the special interests in some vague sense, but they benefit all the special interests, right? So the things that everybody wants done, they get done because there's nobody to object to them for the most part. I have one example of something that hasn't, but we, we can talk about that later if you want. But if you imagine that the policy that's easy to pass is the policy that serves everybody and doesn't have any objections. Then you have policy that harms people in the interest of some other entity that is in a position to buy enough influence to get it done. What's happened is um, the business of the parties has become catering to these special interests because that's where the money is. The money is being spent to get policy made that harms the public in the interest of some other entity. And the reason that we have two of these parties rather than one is because though the interests of, the, uh, of these, special, these special interests are in conflict with each other very frequently. In other words, what uh, Apple might want may be in conflict with what Nabisco wants. They may have two uh, competing interests. And so they are effectively vying for control over policy. But the one thing that is true by virtue of the competition they're in is that the policy they want either way is harmful to the public, right? So why, to your question about why we um, view the past as less corrupt is that I think what we've done and I would point out that in some sense, I think our national story is haunted by the fact that the founding fathers were too early to know anything about evolution, right? Hmm. The origin of species hadn't yet been written. And so what they did not understand, what they could not understand, was that they were building an evolutionary environment. And what we have done is we have played a, we have engaged in an arms race with corruption. What you're talking about is an era in which corruption was much more visible, right? Because the mechanisms that one might use to police it were crude. Um, and as these mechanisms, so you can imagine that um, these special interests might utilize anti-corruption mechanisms to hobble their corrupt competitors, right? So what you get is a mechanism that evolutionarily trains those that would capture government. And we've done it effectively. So in part, what we have is a system in which corruption has been systematized so that it functions in a way that is legal. It's just as destructive, but it's legal. And so there's some definitional question. Is it corruption or isn't it if it's legal, right? Mm -hmm. um, and B, that it has become subtle. So, you know, if you look at the news from last week, you will see that Twitter had its, uh, one of its highly placed people move to the Biden campaign as part of the Biden campaign's transition team. Okay. At the same time, we had Kamala Harris's chief uh, or uh, press secretary moved yeah. to Twitter into the communications division. So what we now need is a term in which a uh, revolving door no longer applies to members of Congress, for example, moving into the industries that they regulate, but it now moves into highly ranked members of the party moving into these tech platforms where they have narrative control over what is discussable. You know, what this has to do with the suspension of, of 
the Articles of Unity account on Twitter, we probably will never know. But the idea that the Democratic Party has a some kind of revolving door into the apparatus that is shaping our narrative, that is shaping our conversations, is, I think, truly frightening because it's like a kind of corruption we're familiar with, revolving door politics, of a whole new form. I think that's an, a really excellent point, uh, just in terms of what corruption actually is. I try to explain it a lot um, to this w- in this way as well, just about, well, you know, just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's not bad, or just like how power systems and systems and structures and all these things and the way that they can govern, govern our lives. One thing I want to turn to is corruption and how we would conceive of it, but also in terms of elections. There is a common kind of refrain out there like, oh, you know, a Bernie Sanders or an Andrew Yang or a Tulsi Gabbard would have won the Democratic nomination if the DNC wasn't corrupt. I do think that there are a lot of progressives out there who are very comfortable telling themselves that narrative and not comfortable grappling with the fact that at the end of the day, I mean, Bernie Sanders just lost more votes. Uh, or Bert, but Joe Biden won more votes, especially amongst older black voters. How does that factor into your calculus, which is that in what way should we think of corruption as deciding factors, but also should what way should we not excuse somebody's failings in order to attract legitimate Democratic support? Um, it's a good question. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to my point about an evolutionary environment that we don't see as an evolutionary environment. Mm -hmm. The corruptors don't necessarily know that that's what they are. Some of them do and some of them don't. But what happens is those strategies that work, they grow and they get elaborated and variations on them emerge and we see those. So over time, what we're seeing is an emergent corruption. That is to say an industry that fails to figure out how to bend the will of government in its direction has a massive disadvantage compared to one that figures out how to do it well, right? So you should expect everybody to play at the limits of the rules and then a bit beyond them, right? There's the limits of the actual rules or whatever it is that's being policed. So we have a hybrid, right? There, The smoke-filled rooms probably don't have smoke in them anymore, but the room still exists, right? Yeah. So those rooms are places in which people are distributing power and the attention of those people is gained in certain ways. If a monetary bribe is illegal, but a wink that causes somebody to know that they're going to have a well-paying job at the end of their, their political tour, mm-hmm. you know, if that has su- supplanted a monetary bribe, then you know, what we'll get is a system of, you know, winks, right? Did you ever shake hands on that deal? No, but you don't know to ask, did you wink, right? So, you know, oh, okay, now we're going to go after winks. Winks turn out to be the new handshake. So winks are going to become illegal. Okay. So (laughs) is there a kind of a long pause that you can make after a statement that will let everybody know that you would be winking if that was still legal? So you get a system that succeeds in bending the will of government in the direction of an industry. And whatever must be true for that not to be, uh, for, I call it implausible deniability. This is no longer plausibly deniable. The corruption of the system is clear based on the way the system works, right? But in any given instance, it is not prosecutable. In other words, um, the standard of reasonable doubt protects things beyond uh, the plausible. And um, what you, what is missing from the picture you paint is what would be true of these various candidates? What would be true of the discussion we are having in political space were it not for the evolution of a very sophisticated mechanism of capturing power? right? I don't know that Bernie Sanders would be viable at all because frankly, and I should tell you, I was a very strong Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016. Um, but the problem with Bernie Sanders is that he's very backward looking, right? Mm-hmm. He, is, he is looking to solutions of the past, which are very appealing relative to the corruption of the present for many people, but they're not forward looking solutions. They're not uh, aware of the new problems we face. But who would be viable 
in an environment where we were actually free to talk about what's really taking place, why we don't end up solving the healthcare uh, crisis, you know, generation after generation, in that environment, many things would be viable that many industries would view as hostile because, frankly, you know, if government started functioning in the interest of the people, uh, it wouldn't be such happy times for some industries. Yes. So before we move on to solutions uh, with Unity 2020, I just want to ask the annoying devil's advocate question and accuse you of whataboutism, sort of one of the most cursed words on the internet, but it's still a useful one because what one could say is that, yes, it's true that both parties have different interests. You know, the Democratic Party has the environmental lobby and they have unions. Republicans have sort of the coal industry, so on and so on and so forth. But what one could say is that it seems as if you're you're drawing an equivalence between the interests that are aligned on sort of both sides. So earlier in the discussion, you were talking about climate change, for example. And at the end of the day, like, yes, is the Democratic Party, you know, the party of Amazon.com <laughs> on multiple different ways. So that's where Jay Carney's working now, formerly of the Obama administration. Um, you know, are they the party of Twitter and all the speech problems? Yes, but they're also the party of it signs the Paris Climate Accords. And the Republican Party is the party that, you know, is in favor of the coal industry. So what do you say to people who sort of see a problem with the the equivalences here and who want to still pick a side? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, uh, I don't think this um, criticism fits very well with what I'm saying, because what I'm really saying is we have an enemy and it is evolutionary dynamics that the system was built without anticipating, right? I, frankly, I don't find it very interesting to blame these entities because, you know, I don't blame a mosquito that <laughs> drinks my blood, right? It's right. a mosquito, it, it, it evolved, that's its job. I swat yeah. it because that's my job. And I think the point is, look, our system is thoroughly corrupt. Most of the people involved in the corruption are probably decent folks who don't really understand the frightening nature of what they are engaged in, right? Some of them are truly bad people who don't give a shit. But, um, but nonetheless, what should matter to us is that the system that is supposed to be protecting us and positioning us for the future is not doing that because it's busy with something else. It's busy with a competing set of uh, priorities. And so... Um, is it, will there always be corruption? Undoubtedly. Can it be managed to a much lower level? Undoubtedly. What's the key to doing it? Building a system that doesn't train the corrupting influence in an evolutionary sense. Building something in which those who would attempt to corrupt the system end up behind rather than ahead. If you build a system in which the corruptors end up ahead, even a little, it will evolve in the direction of more and better corruption. If you build a system in which corruption doesn't pay, it won't evolve and you won't be dealing with ever more sophisticated and subtle versions of it. And that's the real question is which side of that line are we going to be on? What I love about what you just said is the structural focus. I'm taking off the devil's advocate argument. You're, this isn't a conspiracy theory because if, right. if, if something that Sagar and I try to sort of get to, when we talk to people, it's a conspiracy. There are literal people who are actively saying this and this and that, and there's someone in a room somewhere and they're aware of these dynamics, but it's the system. So Sagar, I'll, I'll, I'll give it back to you, but I just, I, I appreciate the structural focus of what you're sort of talking about. Well, it's, it's just something that so many people are ill-equipped to understand. And it's something, Brett, I assume it comes from your evolutionary biological understanding because, I mean, look, I don't have that background, but I can feel it kind of intuitively whenever I talk about Wall Street or TikTok or, you know, something in China. It's like when I see seven or 12 different advocacy groups all coming in, and it's not even that they're necessarily funded by the same people, but they're all funded conveniently in a way by some people who have a certain set of shared interests, and they're all acting within their own individual goal and it comes out to something that helps a certain group of people and that certain group seems to benefit almost every single time after every single decision in different discrete areas is made you start to think of that and you're like oh this is a systemic problem and yet this is what i focus on and struggle with so much brett how do we fix it which is that as you just said a wink becomes a nod a handshake becomes a wink you know it, it's these people are so adept and 
in a way to me, it almost seems you have to go back to the idea that our entire meritocratic elite has been taught that the best way to go out there is just profit generation for yourself, no recognition or understanding of the common good. That seems to me pretty much the only way to do anything about it. That's a multi-decade, multi-year project. What's your solution that you're putting forward? Well, there are a couple things. First, I want to say, I want to be very careful about saying it's structural, it's not a conspiracy because it is almost inevitably both. I think, <laughs> right. well, it just is. <laughs> yeah, I bad, agree. I, in some cases, yes, you're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Bad people exist, right? Yeah. Um, and they, you know, to the extent that they can consciously corrupt the system, they will do it because it's profitable. Um, but the idea that there is a huge fraction of what we see that is emergent, that is to say it evolved, and even the people who are engaged in it don't know what role they're playing, um, that is, I think, certain to be the lion's share. So let us just say it is, a, it is always going to be a hybrid of these two things, mm -hmm. right? Um, but in terms of solutions, there are a couple of inroads. I mean, one thing I will say is that uh, over the last um, more than a decade and intensely in the last few years, I've been involved in many conversations with elites, people highly placed, and they are frightened and they are looking for solutions because they recognize that the road that we are on does not go very far into the future from here. Something is going to change and it is either going to change chaotically in some way that will have arbitrary and almost certainly very negative consequences for us, or it's going to change in some way that we are going to uh, anticipate and steer and possibly get through these very dark times to a, uh, a better place. So the fact that behind closed doors, those conversations sound a lot like people are aware that there's a problem and they are not expecting the system to just keep humming along the way um, the parties pretend. Right. Um, that is, in some sense, hopeful. It is also hopeful, potentially, to the extent that one is in an industry that corrupts governance for its own, for its own ends. There is always this other factor, which is, what is the net effect of corruption for one of these industries, right? The industry may be much more profitable because of the corruption it's able to arrange, but the people in that corporation who are enjoying the benefits of that corruption are also breathing polluted air, right? They are suffering the effects of having their habitats degraded around them. They are being placed in, in, greater danger uh, as a result of a failure to properly navigate uh, various other policy decisions. And so if one could reach those people and say, look, we get why you're playing hardball with respect to uh, issues of governance, but the net effect may not be positive for you. And so the question is, are you up for a trade where your ability to bend government to your will is reduced, but the degree to which you are protected by government goes up, right? You know, would that not be uh, a better spot? And especially in light of the bizarre revolution that seems to be um, gaining steam in the streets of our major cities, everybody should be able to see at this moment that what they are depending on going forward is in jeopardy, right? What we have done so far has placed us in a situation where uh, large numbers of people are threatening to tear the system down in order to solve what I think is largely a misdiagnosed problem. But nonetheless, that moment has come and it is the result of corruption as it always is. What's so interesting to that too, is we're just getting back to this problem of the, of the, of the unshared narratives here, because I actually suspect that and I actually love how you were talking about how the gun sales are a good indicator of how people are actually feeling because the poll <laughs> questions would sort of tell the opposite. Because what's funny is, is if you ask a Democrat about the issue of riots in the street, they say there aren't riots. 
what are you talking about? Why are you giving Tucker Carlson talking points? If you go mm-hmm. to sort of the right, sort of during the Occupy protests, which you were involved in, at the, at the very start, sort of in 2011, you would say, oh, it's a bunch of crazy hippies who just don't want to work and it's all just fake, like insert George Soros reference. So I think it's just, I, I, have, I have no question here, but it's just fascinating that we have these sort of visceral political responses, but there are these underlying indicators that show that people are super distressed. Um, so I, I think that's fascinating. Right. And, you know, I, I'm sort of in my mind trying to imagine, you know, the 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 pollster trying to incorporate this, you know, walking up to people saying, so, uh, you know, in the last two weeks, have you considered the possibility that you may have to shoot other Americans, right? right? Like, <laughs> what, what would that poll even sound like? And yet, yeah. You know, there's no getting around the fact that people who did not own guns are buying them. And the only explanation is that they're frightened that this might come to pass, right? So it can't be captured in a poll because any poll that sounded like that would be dismissed. And it <laughs> probably rightfully you, so, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> you, it's funny. I spend so much time looking at polling for, for rising. I mean, the one that always I always tr- uh, pick is right track wrong track it's actually one of the most highly correlated ones right now the latest pew poll 14 percent say right track who i want to meet i want to be like really like this is good for you like <laughs> like what is going on oh well i think no i yeah, i think there's yeah. a strong argument we are on yeah. the right track headed in the uh, wrong direction oh there you go yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i i think we what we want to close out with is just a real fulsome explanation of unity 2020 because i actually do think you need to have our previous, like we have to bookmark and footnote everything that we've done so we can understand to the point of where we are at right now. So tell us about this project, Unity 2020, and also the pushback that it's received within the political establishment. I think that's one of the most key things I want to highlight. Okay. So um, I have long wanted to escape this crazy system. I've I've been at this now for uh, a couple of decades in in one way or another. I've watched the the corruption grow. I have watched us miss opportunity after opportunity. I've watched us get further and further behind the eight ball uh, ecologically, and I've been looking for the way out. So, in doing that, I have encountered thousands of versions of here is why you cannot leave, right? This is why you cannot consider a third party vote. Here's why you must vote blue, all of these things, right? It's always the same. And what I really want your listeners to think about is the idea that at one point in very recent history, Mitt Romney was the evil so great that we could not contemplate a third party run, right? Now I hear people on the left hoping that maybe Mitt Romney could somehow magically swoop in and be the person on the right because we can trust Mitt, right? So he couldn't possibly have been the great evil that he was portrayed as uh, in the recent past. Um, But my point is, okay, there needed to be a mechanism to, to defeat the greater evil paradox. And that mechanism involves a kind of um, balance. It involves the discovery of a truly apolitical path forward, a non-ideological path forward. And so it was really a structural question. What I proposed was that we draft two candidates, one from the left and one from the right, under the agreement that they would govern together by consensus and that... um, the person at the top of the ticket would be chosen by coin flip. After four years, the person at the top of the ticket would reverse and the former vice president would run for the president's spot. And this would go on until one person had inhabited the role of president twice. Now, the entire purpose of that structure is to neutralize any bias in any direction. And neutralizing any bias in any direction does two things. One, it allows people to contemplate this without being accused or without feeling that they are empowering the side farther away from those they find sympathetic. And we know that this works because we've seen the data of people who have signed up to volunteer with us. And it is indeed very evenly balanced between would-be Biden supporters and would-be Trump supporters. What surprised us was that we also got something like a quarter of our volunteers were people who weren't planning to vote at all. People who were 
um, outside of this process who are now energized enough by this idea that they're actually willing to spend their time on it. So uh, we do get accused um, by people on the Trump right of being shills for the Biden campaign, and we get mm -hmm. accused by Bidenites of, of uh, being cryptically supporters of Trump, which also tells you that nobody can figure out how this plays out in terms of the dynamic that they're familiar with. That freedom to consider something outside of the duopoly structure is the necessary ingredient for us to figure out something to do that is an alternative. Now, we still don't have the groundswell necessary to be a political force. We cannot draft our candidates in at the current level of success, but we have opened the conversation. And it is also the case that history um, proceeding in the way it does in 2020 could deliver an opportunity that we cannot foresee in advance. So something that, A, I, I really appreciate and want to highlight to our listeners how much thought you put into the actual structure here, because I think too often third party or sort of extra political movements don't put that much sort of thought into this. So I, I wish Ralph Nader had put a degree of thought into this before 2000, because I think a lot of people did not think structurally enough about that. But I guess my problem is, is that something Sagar and I like to do on the show is de-escalate culture war issues whenever we sort of can. But in this case, I need to escalate one, which is what yeah. happens with Supreme Court justice appointments. So for example, Let's, let's just posit every sort of mechanical thing that you want to sort of do, like the coin flip, the switching. What does happen, though, when you have situations where, let's say, I think, so Dan Crenshaw and Tulsi Gabbard were the appointments. Dan Crenshaw is unabashedly pro-life. You have right. Republican senators like Senator Josh Hawley who reflect huge portions of the Republican Party's base when they say, we will literally not support anyone who is not on the record saying that Roe v. Wade must be overturned. In those situations, there really seem to be times for choosing where there actually is no consensus, right? There is no consensus position on trans rights. There is no consensus position on abortion. So what do we do? And I, I can see this in the economic spheres, of course, but what do we do yeah. with the culture war issues? Yeah. Well, I want to push back a little bit. I wouldn't say there is a consensus on trans rights or abortion or guns. There's not. But what there is, is an overwhelming gravity in a centrist position that does not reflect either of the positions that we are told we must adhere to. So most Americans believe that you need to have the right to an abortion, but that that right degrades with the, um, the extent of the pregnancy, right? Mm -hmm. Most Americans do not believe in abortion the day before birth. And, you know, you're right, Dan Crenshaw is pro-life. On the other hand, if you put Dan Crenshaw and Tulsi Gabbard in a room and you say, we have to appoint a Supreme Court justice, and that means that we have to grapple with the question of reproductive rights, my guess would be that they would arrive at a, an uncomfortable piece that would match almost exactly what we know the majority of Americans believe. The majority of Americans do not like abortion. They want less of it, but they do not think zero is the right amount. In other words, first trimester abortions, for obvious reasons, obvious biological reasons, carry um, much less significance, right? The only real argument against the right to a first trimester abortion has to do with the idea. No, actually, I won't say the only argument because actually mm. I think there are two good arguments. But the primary argument is that um, this uh, fetus is God's will. And the fact is that doesn't really have a place in our legal structure, right? As the fetus gets more and more developed and closer and closer to being what we recognize as a person, farther and farther, farther and farther away from it being a fertilized egg or a, a ball of cells, we have deeper questions to grapple with. So, um, you know, I, I am concerned about somebody, I'm concerned, frankly, about either polarized side owning this question versus people who represent the spectrum of responsible Americans grappling with the fact that we have to get along and come up with a policy that everybody can live with. 
Um, yeah, I mean, the, the issue is I don't disagree with you uh, necessarily, but it's just that in terms of that discussion, um, just in terms of the inputs, like Dan Crenshaw, if he adopted a position like that, could realistically just never be elected again as a Republican. Um, and, and I think that that's pre- basically the same thing whenever it comes to a Democrat. That's just electorally. And then, you oh. know, if you're religious, like that, there's just an objection there where any deal making kind of whatsoever is just seeding ground on what is inherently just a moral argument that you're not even willing to play politics with necessarily. I just think but this I, is this is the one place where it falls starts to fall apart. Um, so I don't think so. I think you're actually mm. making my argument because mm. it does start to fall apart in an environment where effectively these extreme ideological positions have a gun to our heads, right? The point is, Dan Crenshaw, are you willing to give up your role as uh, a rising star in the Republican Party um, over a rational compromise that serves the interests of Americans? Isn't that an interesting question, right? Why, why is Dan Crenshaw in that situation? Why is Tulsi Gabbard in this situation, mm-hmm. right? We have to be able to have a politics in which issues that require careful, deft navigation of a difficult subject matter can be addressed by patriots so that we come out. Look, there is no place in the abortion debate, the gun debate, the trans rights debate that is going to make the extremes happy and fit what most people want. But the system is supposed to balance these things properly. And it's not balancing them at all. What it's doing is it's ricocheting. And that ricochet is serving the interests of all of us very poorly. And I would point out to the extent that we are now facing an election in which um, people are wargaming the many scenarios in which something contested comes out of it. There could be unrest as a result of it. People are buying guns in advance of it. In that situation, to have a court with eight members where we can't allow the president to nominate a uh, a moderate and the Senate to seat that person in an effort to avoid the hazard to the republic. I mean, this seems so obvious to me. It is quite clear. If you love this country, then you would put aside politics at this moment absolutely instantly. And the president would appoint somebody moderate that the Senate could live with. The Senate would seat them on the court so that at election night, we have a court that is positioned to solve our problem if that's what it comes to, right? This is, we're actually talking about whether the Republic can continue and we need all of the tools at our disposal. And we're going to play politics over abortion now, right? This is insane. So my last question here is, I'm interested in how you deal with actors outside of that room, right? So let's let's once again, posit the room, Tulsi, Dan Crenshaw, they get along, they're aligned, they're patriots. What do you do though in that system about the rising senator on the right or the left, or even an activist influencer who launches a primary campaign? Um, Because the thing that interests, and and you speak a bit about, and you sort of in the documents of Unity 2020 about the structure of the political system, but an issue in the political system is, for example, only the most intense people in the base sort of vote. So this centrist, moderately position doesn't come out in our elections because, once again, in a primary in the Republican or Democratic Party, it's not going to trend to that sort of position. So how do you get a system where you have this Unity 2020 agreement where the outside actors who all want power on their own are incentivized to not break the... This seems like a giant game theory prisoner's dilemma problem. Oh, it is a giant game theory prisoner's dilemma problem. But there is a... uh, That game theory creates hidden opportunities as much as it creates hazards and obstacles. And so what, what we are not detecting, because, you know, red and blue, you know, donkeys and elephants has been our political reality for our entire lives... We do not understand that this terrible structure is entirely resting on you not having an alternative. In other words, the argument that you cannot contemplate leaving this structure because whatever you care about, you will make it worse if you do, 
that argument is the the sole thing protecting the duopoly. And as soon as people discover that that argument is A, constructed to keep them prisoner, and B, not logical, as soon as people discover that they have another opportunity, as soon as people detect what it is like to have actual patriots governing in their interest, they will rebel and it will collapse, right? Mm. So the point is, it's a very, very powerful structure that is very fragile. And that is not so uncommon, right? It's ungodly powerful. But it is also poised for collapse if one discovers that the central thing that protects it is a fiction. I think that's such an important point. So Dr. Weinstein, where can people find out more about Unity 2020 and more about yourself? Well, you can't find out too much more about Unity on Twitter because Twitter has prevented (laughs) us from reaching you that way. Um, You could certainly tune into the Dark Horse podcast. We talk about Unity 2020 there with some regularity. You can come to our website, which is articlesofunity.org. And you can give us your email address and then you'll get updates um, as as we distribute them. All right. Well, it's just been such an ex- excellent conversation. And I appreciate you joining us so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Really appreciated it. Sweet. All right. All right. Great. Good. Thank you. That was great. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. As we mentioned, we talked with Dr. Weinstein about this issue because you guys are so interested in third parties. So please don't just email us because you want to give us reviews and have us stop talking about reviews after 1000. Seriously, let us know what are topics you want to learn more about? What should we be covering? We've been pretty clear that we don't see ourselves as experts, but we can have really interesting people to talk about things. So we'd love to have you guys send us any questions or topics we should cover more. And as always, a special shout out to the Lincoln Network for enabling the work that we do here every day. Go check out Reboot 2020 for their post-selection conference that many of your fan favorites and myself will be speaking at. And with that, we'll be back on Thursday. Thursday.